Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. My name is Dan Halleck. Uh, like Stephen said, I'm the pastor of the Students and Families here, and so good to see all of you here. Thank you for being with us this morning. I'm thankful uh, for the privilege to open up the Word of God with you this morning. Um, In the late 1990s, a uh, Christian author named Joshua Harris uh, gained a lot of popularity among youth groups in our country. Um, He wrote a a famous book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, in addition to other books. And in that book, he challenged young people to um, flee sexual immorality and to instead flee to God and to his word and to, to... uh, see what God's design was as, as articulated in Scripture for, for our bodies and our dating relationships and for marriage. Well, fast forward to 2019, and uh, Joshua Harris announced on Instagram that in recent years he'd gone through a process of deconstructing his faith, and he could no longer consider himself a Christian. Uh, he said that he repented of all his teachings in his books, and he apologized for not affirming all expressions of human sexuality. Now, one thing that Harris said that was especially interesting was this. He said that in the process of radically changing his views about God and about God's word and about sexuality in general, uh, he uh, thought it made more sense to him to stop being a Christian altogether uh, than to remain a Christian or call himself a Christian while he twisted the words of Scripture to fit his new beliefs. You know, in Scripture, God so clearly commands us to to know him and to imitate Jesus. And in some passages, it says, imitate God, imitate God the Father. Uh, Scripture is so clear about um, God's command to us to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness as he defines it. Um, It's clear about... uh, his holiness, the Lord's holiness, that it is more intellectually honest for a person to stop calling themselves a Christian than to try to pretend to be a Christian while distorting the teachings of Christ. But sadly, uh, throughout the centuries, many teachers, uh, pastors, Christians have twisted the scriptures to try to justify uh, their own immorality, their, their um, ungodly behavior, their abuse of other people. And in fact, this happened really quickly after Jesus rose from the dead. Only a few decades after Jesus' resurrection, there were uh, many false teachers teaching that since Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, we're now free to live as sinfully as we want. And this was obviously a horrific distortion of the gospel, and this false teaching came to be called antinomianism. Anti means against, and namas means law in Greek, so against the law or against the commands of God. That's what this group of self-proclaimed Christians were known for. Um, And because of this false teaching, it was creating a lot of trouble in the church. It was dangerous Uh, for not only believers, but for those who are looking into Christianity. And so the Lord raised up some 
people to refute this false teaching. One of those was Jesus' own half-brother, Jude. And God raised up Jude to write a letter to Christians, which we know is the letter of Jude in our Bible, to do three things. First of all, to remind the Christians of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, to warn them of the eternal punishment that's awaiting false teachers. And third, to urge believers to contend for the faith, the true faith that was handed down to them from Jesus and his apostles. And so if you have a Bible or if you have your phone and you want to turn with me, we're going to be in the book of Jude in the New Testament. It's a uh, very short one-page letter, uh, which I thought I could cover in two weeks. And it's, it's the uh, second to last book of the Bible right before Revelation. And as a preface to this, um, if, you've, if you're familiar with Jude, you know that there's a lot of theological content and references packed into this short little letter. And just because of time, I can't go into all of it in depth. But I do encourage you to, to study this at home because uh, it is a fascinating and important letter. And I will say this, today's message is, is a sobering message. Um, and um, it's one that we need to take seriously and that we get to take seriously. This, this letter is specifically addressed to Christians, which is interesting. Sometimes you see letters addressed to individuals. This one's specifically addressed to the church. So this morning, what we're gonna do is we're gonna cover one uh, to 15, verses one to 15, and let's just start by reading Jude's greeting, which is rich with gospel truths here in verses one to two. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So some of you probably know that, that even though Jude was Jesus' half-brother, technically, uh, Jude was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' public ministry. Uh, in fact, Jude and his other siblings, you remember in the New Testament, it talks about how they, they thought Jesus was crazy. They thought he was nuts for calling himself the Messiah. Uh, but then it was after the resurrection when Jude, like so many others, had their eyes opened by God to see that Jesus wasn't a joke. He really was the Messiah. He really is God back from the dead. And so also Jude's brother James, uh, he also became a believer. And um, James went on to be the lead elder of the church in Jerusalem, which you read about in Acts. And James went to write a, another letter of the New Testament. And, and, and so here for Jude, what's really interesting is that uh, you know, I could imagine as a, a younger brother watching, having Jesus as your older brother, that could be really hard. And I could see him maybe having felt a lot of bitter feelings towards Jesus. But now that he knows he's God, he has this holy reverence for Jesus. And it was so great that he does not even refer to himself as Jesus's brother. He simply refers to himself as a servant of Jesus the Christ and brother of James. So he can still be James' brother, right? But he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he uses these three phrases uh, to describe who he's writing to. And he, these are just packed with wonderful truths. He says, to those who are called, to those who are beloved in God the Father, and to those who are kept for Jesus Christ. 
And so even though we know that Jude wrote this letter to a historical group of Christians, these three truths uh, describe all of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. And so first, we are those whom God called to himself. The maker, our creator, called us to himself, and he did this through the proclamation of the gospel. And he did this with power in such a way that he opened our eyes to the awesomeness of Jesus and to our need for him. And he made us born again. And second, it says we are beloved in God the Father, in the Father, okay? And so implied in these three verses is the Trinity. So there's one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you see all three of them working here in these verses. And, but what he's saying is, Christians, you have to remember that the Father loves you. It's not just Jesus, okay? They're all equally God. The Father is the one who sent Jesus to save you. He loves you. And if you trust in Jesus, then you're united in Christ. And I believe Colossians says you're hidden in Christ. And if you're hidden in Christ, then you're hidden in the Father. You're covered by his righteousness because he loves you. That's encouraging. Amen? Um, sorry, I was a Baptist pastor, so I talk back a little bit. Um, third, well, and I want you to talk back a little bit, too, if that's a, if, you know, you got to get comfortable with that, but. Third, uh, it says we are kept for Jesus Christ. Um, in Ephesians 1, it tells this about what this means. It says that when you heard the good news, and then when you believed that good news, God did something awesome to you. He sealed you with his promised Holy Spirit. So you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working here. And the Spirit is the guarantee of your salvation until Jesus returns. So what this means, what he's saying is you're kept for Jesus. Jesus is the one keeping you. He's not gonna let you go, Christian. That is so encouraging. And on the last day, as part of the bride of Christ, God will, the Father will present you to his son, Jesus, for the glory and majesty of, of, of Jesus' name in eternity and also at the same time for your internal enjoyment and blessedness in God. That's so amazing. This is all by God's grace. So Christians, we are those whom God called to himself with power. We are those who are beloved in the Father. And we are those who are kept for Jesus Christ. And Jude begins his letter with these three phrases to remind us who you are. Because so we need to be reminded of this every day. And who we are all of this is because of the good news of what God has done for us, not because of what we've done for him. He rescued us at great cost to himself so that we might do what Jesus told us to do, to take his yoke upon ourselves in order to follow him, to learn to become holy like he is holy, while at the same time resting in him and his grace. That's really good news. And so, thank you. Um, Praise God. Uh, and then Jude says this, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So these are graces of God given to us. And just like the Christians receiving this letter would need each of these three blessings from God, mercy from God, peace from God, love from God. 
Just like that original audience needed it, we need it too in order to confront the dangers that Jude's about to describe here. And so let's read about those a little bit. In verses three to four, he writes, beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all was delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Jesus, uh, Jude says he had been eager to write these Christians, right, about their shared blessings in Christ, but now that these false teachers had entered the church, this was much more urgent and had to be dealt with. And so he urges the believers, us, (laughs) to contend for the faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so what this means is the gospel, uh, the faith, the doctrine of God that is found in scripture is not a message you and I create. It's a gift with which we've been entrusted. It's delivered to us. Our job is to be messengers, not to, uh, our job is to be the waiters, not the chef, okay? We just bring the food out. This is from God. And so this gospel message about who Jesus was, about what he taught, about what he accomplished in his living and dying and rising, this was in danger. And these false teachers had crept into the church unnoticed, just like wolves among sheep. And this was the the scary thing is they appeared to be believers, okay? They claimed to be believers, but what they were doing is leading the flock away from God. And they were leading the flock away from the faith that had been entrusted to the church by Jesus and his apostles. And and furthermore, Jude says, listen, these influencers, they're not even godly. They are ungodly. Uh, And by ungodly, he means this. Listen, they they do not act like our master and Lord. They don't act like Jesus. They, They don't obey Jesus. They're not born again by Jesus. And they're they're using Jesus' death on on the cross. They're using his blood as an excuse to rebel against him. And this is why he uses the word, they're perverting the gospel, you guys. They're perverting the precious gospel of Jesus in order to promote sensuality. And this word sensuality means to follow all the impulses of your body. It's kind of vague, but what it, it, and specifically what he's referring to here is to follow all the sexual impulses of your flesh. That's what the teachers were teaching. And so they, these teachers would have been teaching something like, listen, sex is a gift. Your sexuality was given to you by God. Use it however you want. Uh, as long as your desires don't hurt you or anybody else, then follow your body's lead. Your heart won't lead you astray, right? Your body won't lead you astray. Just follow it. And don't feel bad about it because Jesus died to free you from the law. Okay, this was satanic teaching. And this was so clearly the opposite of of what the apostles were teaching, right? In, In Romans 6, the apostle Paul, he said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means, 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so it was through their, their unrepentance, uh, not only in their teaching, but in their lifestyle, that these false teachers denied the lordship of Jesus, showing Jesus isn't Lord of me. He's just, a, he's just a ticket to heaven. He's not the Lord of me, though. He doesn't tell me what to do. They denied Jesus as Lord, and, and other people were buying into this, and it was troubling, very troubling. And so now Jude begins to explain why <clears throat> this false teaching can't be taken lightly and why we can't take it lightly today. He writes that long ago, God designated these false teachers to eternal condemnation. And the message he's saying here is, listen, rebels against God who do not repent will suffer the wrath of God. And he illustrates this uh, using three historical examples of when unrepentant rebels suffered his wrath. And his audience would have been a mixture of Jews who were familiar with... uh, the Old Testament uh, stories, but also with Jewish traditional stories combined, and the audience would have also included some Gentiles. Uh, But his references are mainly of Jewish origin. And and in verses five to seven, he says this, I wanna remind you, although you once knew it fully, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In verse five, let's take those one at a time, right? God says that he didn't even spare the members of Israel, <laughs> the chosen people. The, the book of Exodus describes how the Lord saved the Israelites out of, um, the, out of Egypt. But the problem was, even though God rescued them, their hearts didn't change toward him. And so what were they known for? A lot of grumbling, Right? Unrepentant grumbling against God, discontentment with God and his provisions, a desire to worship idols instead of God who might bless them in ways that they weren't receiving the blessings they wanted from God. And so all of this revealed they didn't trust in the Lord. And so that's a very serious serious thing. And God says that he destroyed all those who didn't believe. They didn't enter the promised land. And then in verse six, God says, he goes, talks about angels, that there were certain angels that, that he had blessed with positions of authority, uh, with, with dwellings in the heavenly realm, but they were not content with what they had. They weren't content with God, with, with the blessings he'd given them. And most likely, uh, this is referring to Genesis six, the beginning of Genesis six, when certain angels abandoned heaven because they thought earth would be better than heaven. And so they came to earth, demonically possessed men in order to lay with women. And so this, I mean, it's a strange story. This was cosmic treason against the Lord on many different levels. And the Lord saw it all. And he says that because of the rebellion, what does it say? The Lord is keeping them in eternal chains 
under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day when Jesus returns. And then the third example he gives is in verse seven. He, he describes how the citizens of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns um, rebelled against God's design by living sensual lives, by abandoning themselves to the impulses of their flesh. I mean, they, they took it to the extreme. They, they followed the path that these false teachers uh, were promoting. And they indulged in sexual immorality. They pursued unnatural desires with one another. And God says he punished them terribly. It says they underwent a punishment of eternal fire. And so through these three historical examples, listen, what's God telling us? Don't follow them. Don't follow the way of these people, these demons. And don't let false teachers fool you into believing that God blesses unrepentant sinfulness or lifestyles of sin. What I want you to see, he's saying, is on the contrary, look at scripture, look at the history of the world. God has dramatically punished unrepentant sinners in the past, and he's gonna do it again. And so, in light of this, what does this mean um, for all of us? Well, for, for those of us who are in Christ, we, we've gotta soberly ask ourselves, man, am I antinomian? Am I, am I against the laws of God? Are there sins that I've just become comfortable with and I've allowed to become patterns of sin in my life? Uh, do, we, do we justify our, our sin before we even do the sin? Just saying, listen, we can always ask for forgiveness later, okay? Uh, do we justify our sinful lifestyles by saying, you know, it is just not practical in our day and age to follow Jesus the way he commanded. We've progressed, right? May the Holy Spirit never allow us to be content with the presence of sin in our lives. Uh, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when my best friend died to save me from it? Let's be people who ask the Lord to to search our hearts, to see, you know, the end of Psalm 139, Lord, search my heart, see if there are any grievous ways in my heart. Let's be people who, man, don't try to pretend and play games with God. Let's be people who acknowledge our sins, confess to the Lord who's faithful and just to forgive us and will purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's ask for forgiveness from God, from one another, Let's ask God, would you, Lord, would you please give me strength to do what's right because it's really hard sometimes. Let's be people who celebrate the gospel every day. Listen, you gotta be rooted in this good news that you, through faith, are a beloved child of God because he purchased you on the cross. He bought you. That's the, that's the language the scripture uses. He purchased you. You didn't buy him. Man, I'm so thankful for that truth. And then Jude explains, he explains that these teachers, man, they're conceited, they're ignorant and foolish. And why is he doing this again? Because people aren't seeing it. They're following them. 
And so he writes in verses 8 to 10, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. They reject authority. They, they blaspheme the glorious ones, the angels. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they don't understand, and they, they're destroyed but by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Okay, listen, what's the root of all this, right? Obviously, these false teachers, they're rebelling against God, they're rebelling against the gospel, they're promoting sexual sin, they're promoting immoral living. But what is driving all of it? It's pride. It's the sin of our first father, Adam, who wasn't content and said, I don't want to worship God, I want to be God. Their arrogance, they believe they're better than other people. They believe they're above the law of God. They believe they're even more enlightened than the angels, okay? This is nuts. They believe they are their own authority. And verse eight says that they derive their authority, where do they get their authority from? Not from Jesus, not from his commands, but they try to claim this alternate authority. You see what that is in the text? Their own dreams, okay? So what authorizes them to defile their flesh in a way God told them not to defile their flesh? Well, I had a vision about it. <laughs> what, what authorized them to reject the authority of the church and of God? A dream told me to. What authorized them to blaspheme the angels and the demons? Well, I had a dream I was more powerful than them. Listen, it sounds nuts when you say it that way, but how often, when you look at history, people have been led astray by seemingly spiritual people who claim to have dreams, visions, a direct pipeline to God that nobody else has. What an effective trick to coerce people to follow you. If we were to look at just the past 100 years, in this room, we could list easily a dozen examples of this. Verse nine says this, that even the archangel Michael, who was not just an angel, is not just an angel, but an archangel. I mean, he's up there. He's one of the few angels listed in scripture by name. Even he, you would think, man, if there's an angel with power, it's him. Even he was not arrogant enough about his God-given authority to rebuke Satan by his own power, right? Instead, Michael told Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. But apparently, man, these false teachers, they're so arrogant, and they're just saying, I've got the power in me. I, and I can ridic and it says they were ridiculing things they didn't even understand, they wouldn't tell people they didn't understand it, but they were ridiculing the angels and demons, which is a very serious thing to do. They were making light of the holiness of God, making light of what Jesus accomplished in the gospel. And ironically, what Jude says is that, you know, even though these, these teachers were clueless about these things they claimed to understand, what was actually gonna destroy them in the end was the very thing they did understand really well which is how to follow the impulses of their flesh. 
like unreasoning animals. That's what he calls them. So listen, if a, a dream or a vision or a quiet voice or a burning in your heart or an impulse of your flesh urges you to do something that disobeys the commands of Jesus Christ, don't do it, okay? Instead, what we need to do is rebuke false thoughts, rebuke lies with the truth of God's word. And we don't claim inherent power in us. We say, by the power of Jesus Christ, I rebuke this. That's where our power is, guys. We're nothing without Jesus. <laughs> Abide in me, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? We need Jesus. And then next, Jude writes that these false teachers are, are endangering not only their souls, their own souls, but they're endangering the souls of other people, which is really serious. And he writes in verse 11, some woes, okay? Jesus used the same language in his public ministry. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, let me give you an Old Testament refresher here on some of these stories. So speaking through Jude, this is, this is the word of God saying, woe to these false teachers, for they have walked in the way of Cain. They've been discontent with God, with the beloved, precious blood of Christ, it's not been enough for them. They've followed the impulses of their flesh without remorse. And they've destroyed others just like Cain murdered his own brother. That's what they're like. Woe to these false teachers then. He says, for they've walked in the way of Balaam. What that means, they're referring to Balaam's story in the Old Testament. He's saying they are greedy. They're greedy for money. They're greedy for power. They want power. And what where do they get their money from? The Christians, two-thirds of which at that point was women and a lot of vulnerable people. And they're preying on their flock, this flock, while leading them to hell. <laughs> and then woe to these false teachers for they perish in Korah's rebellion. So Korah was a man who led, led a group of men, gathered men to, to rebel against the Lord and, and his leaders. And so in like manner, these false teachers lead men to rebel against the Lord. They're doing the same thing. They're rebelling against God, his angels. And just like Korah and his band of men, what happened to them? Do you remember this Old Testament story? They were literally swallowed by the wrath of God the ground swallowed them. He said, this is what's gonna happen to these guys. They're gonna be swallowed by the wrath of God. So this isn't a joke, obviously, right? Obviously, leading God's people astray and abusing God's flock is, is something God will not tolerate forever. Um, and who is commissioned in this letter? I guess we haven't, yeah, I guess in verse two to four we got there. Who is told to contend for the faith? The church, the believers, okay? So as, a, as Christ's church, if we are believers, it is our serious God-given responsibility 
to teach and to contend for the biblical faith that he entrusted to us, the true gospel, the true message of Jesus. And this is so important because what he's telling us is, listen, souls are at stake here. Doctrine matters. Your souls are at stake. The souls of the lost are at stake. Uh, remember in, in, in uh, Mark 9, 42, I mean, Jesus said this. Listen, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It would be, that would be a much better option than what's awaiting that person when they meet Jesus. Wow. <sighs> Sobering, right? And then in verses 12 to 13, Jude uses five analogies from nature to describe the danger that these false teachers are to the church. Uh, he writes, uh, verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts, which is kind of what they call their church fellowship groups, love feasts. We just love on one another. We eat and we love on one another. <laughs> and we take the Lord's Supper, right? Um, that's what they were doing. And here, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice de dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so let's take those one at a time real quickly. First, it says these false shepherds, uh, they're feasting with Christians at their gatherings without any fear of the Lord. And you know who's paying for the food? the church. <laughs> Their priority is to feed themselves, not the flock. Uh, Professor Daniel Wallace writes that they are like hidden reefs dangerously lurking beneath the surface of the sea, able to sink ships which are presumed to be in safe waters. And second, these false teachers, says, are like waterless clouds. They're swept along by the winds. And and they appear to hold life-giving refreshment and vitality and nourishment that we need. But in actuality, he's saying they're nothing. They're empty. It's a facade. They do not and cannot provide the life, the living water, the vitality that comes from Jesus because they're not in Jesus. And then third, these false teachers are like fruitless trees in late autumn. So, so what are trees supposed to be doing in late autumn? supposed to be feeding people, right? Nourishing people. They don't nourish others because they're dead inside. They are separated from the life that is in Christ. It's not in them. And, and more than that, he says, listen, they're not dead. They're twice dead because they're uprooted too. And they're awaiting their final destruction in the furnace of God's wrath. And that's what Jesus talks about in John 15. And fourth, these false teachers are like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. If you've ever been uh, out on a sea or lake or ocean, deep sea fishing or, or something like that, and the, the waves get crazy, you know, or on a ferry or on a cruise ship, you know that's not fun place to be, right? These teachers were just like that. They weren't safe. They weren't calm, they weren't steady. They're like the wild waves of the sea, tossed to and fro, they're unanchored, they're not anchored to the word of truth. Um, and it says that from the filth inside themselves, they cast up foam, the foam of their shame for all to see. 
And then fifth, these false teachers are like wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Um, we have some people in this church who are really into astronomy, Joe Niemeyer, others. Listen, um, stars aren't supposed to wander. They're supposed to keep a steady course, right? They're supposed to guide us in the right direction. He's saying, listen, these teachers are not like that. These teachers are wandering stars. They're leading people the wrong way. They're leading people down paths of danger. And because of that, what does it say? The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them for eternity. Listen, it's no wonder that in James um, 3.1, God said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then Jude writes now that, that just as God punished unremorseful rebels in the past. I'm not pointing at you guys like you're the rebels. I'm just in my mind pointing to the past, okay? Just like he did in the past, he will also punish false teachers, these specific false teachers in the last day, okay? So verses 14 and 15, it says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict Listen to the key word ungodly here. To convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. <clears throat> there are some pretty vivid descriptions in scripture of what the last day is gonna be like. And when you read this, what thoughts or emotions kind of swell up in you? Do you... When you, when you think about this, you visualize Jesus Christ in all his glory coming back in the clouds with 10,000s of his angels to execute judgment, to convict all the ungodly, unrepentant sinners of all their ungodly ways and harsh words spoken against him. What, what does that do in your soul? Does it make you a little scared? It makes me a little scared, okay? This is why it says, fear the Lord, you don't mess with him, okay? He is a God to be feared. It's gonna be a really fearful day for his enemies and it's gonna be the most safe, love, joyful day for his people, okay? But there are people, I mean, when we read this, are you like the false teachers who scoff at this? Are there, are there people you know who just scoff at the idea of Jesus coming back in the clouds? Or do you hope for that day? Just like we sang this morning, Jesus is the king of kings. He's the, so there's a lot of kings, right? He's the king over all the kings. He's the Lord over all the lords with capital, or small L's, the lords, okay? He's the big L, Lord. And scripture says he's holy, holy, holy. That means he's in his own league. That's what that word means. It's an adjective, it's like, how do you describe God? It was an adjective they had to come up with because it describes nothing else. He's different than anything else. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. He's the lion of Judah. He's coming back to earth to punish the wicked, to make things right, and to bless his people forever. You've never known a judge so greatly to be feared as Jesus Christ. That's the testimony of scripture. And at the same time, You've never known a judge as loving and merciful as Jesus Christ.
That's the testimony of scripture. What did he do in his first coming? The judge to whom all authority over heaven and earth had been given, Jesus stepped down from his judge's stand, right, from his bench. And why did he come down? Because we, we had been declared guilty. He said in, in James 3, you're already condemned. That's why he came, to lay down my life for you so that you don't have to suffer the punishment you deserve for your sin against me. <laughs> what judge does that? Only, only the one true God, Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful for that. And this is why now Christians, in the words of, of John Owen, when we wake up, when we begin each day, we can begin with the deeply encouraging realization that, man, I am accepted by God. Not on the basis of, of, of my personal performance for him, but on the basis of his infinitely perfect righteousness for the performance he did for me. That's what gives me hope. And we need to celebrate that every day, Christians. We don't work for salvation. We do good works because we're saved. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus. And if you're here today, and you're a Christian, what is our, what is our motivation, our catalyst for pursuing Christ-likeness? Because it's really hard. Our catalyst is not legalism or fear of God's condemnation because we don't have to fear that anymore. If anyone's in Christ, there's no condemnation. Our catalyst is that we rest in the grace of God and he catches us every time we fall short of his glory forever. We're covered with the righteousness of Christ. God loves us. And so he's not gonna be pounding us as we pursue holiness. He's gonna be cheering us on and catching us when we fall short. That's a God we wanna become like. And if you're here today and, you know, this might sound new to you or you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I pray that you will do that today. I'm so thankful that right now, Jesus offers us peace. That um, even though we have all rebelled against God and even though all of us will die even though we will see him face to face, he gives us an option of how we want to appear before him. So for you, as you think about meeting your maker, will God be for you only your judge on that day? Or will God be for you the good judge and justifier who has declared you not guilty of sin, but fully beloved in God? Because you can have that today. And so I just encourage you today, if you believe Jesus is Lord, if you believe you need him to take what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and apply that to you, that you would pray to him and ask him to save you today, and he will because he's good, and he's the only one who can save. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's cling, man, to the true gospel of Jesus. Let's be soberly mindful of the, the judgment that is awaiting false teachers and those who follow them, and let's contend for the true faith that was handed to us from Jesus and the apostles. And I hope you can come back next Sunday as we look at why in the world were these false teachers so enticing to follow? And then also, how does God want us to contend 
for this faith that he entrusted to us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the judge who comes down from the bench to lay down his life for his sheep and that you've done it and that you proved it by rising from the dead, that your death is totally sufficient to save all who trust in you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to your awesomeness and that we would trust in you for, for salvation. God, every day we fail. We know that, but help us, Lord, not to make patterns of sin in our lives, but to deal with our sin, to confess it to you, that you would purify us again every day and that we would seek your righteousness, knowing that, man, I'm so thankful for the grace of Christ and that his grip on me is infinitely stronger than my grip on him. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.